Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. You may be seated. Well, a few weeks ago, as I was reading uh, the newspapers, I came across Soji, uh, Soji Moromoto of Tokyo, uh, Japan, a man who certainly has one of the more interesting jobs that I've ever come across. For, for what does Soji do? Well, in his own words, I had a role model who inspired me to do it, says Soji. I was never any good at group work, and I couldn't work well with people generally, and my boss told me, whether you are here or not, nothing changes. And I thought, well, isn't it okay to do nothing productively? But when everyone else at work started to tell me, you are the only one who does absolutely nothing, I began to wonder, could I lend out the do-nothing guy to other people? And that's how it started. I am the do-nothing guy, a rental service where I lend myself out. When I get an offer, I will simply be there. I don't talk to anyone, I don't touch anyone, I don't travel outside Tokyo, I will literally do nothing other than give simple answers and eat and drink. Well, you may have thought that such a hair-brained idea uh, from such a slothful character may have ended in total disaster. But as it turns out, Soji, the do-nothing guy, is now rather busy. For Soji often turns up at new Tokyo bakeries uh, and is paid to eat sandwiches for free to show people it's worth eating there. And Soji often sits by businessmen and women at cafes and is paid to drink tea so that they might not feel so lonely. Indeed, for a little bit extra, Soji will even smile and wave you off to work with great enthusiasm at the train station just so that everyone might know that you are well-loved. And what might that cost you? Well, on top of any food and drink that you will be required to give Soji, the do-nothing guy charges around $100 for every few hours of nothing. Indeed, Soji currently earns around $75,000 a year and rarely has to buy any food and drink for himself. And so is Soji a Christian? Well, I don't know. The article didn't tell me. But could Soji be a Christian? 
Indeed, for any of you here who now may be tempted to spend the rest of this sermon drafting a business proposal entitled The Do-Nothing Dude of Nashville, (laughs) can someone who is known for being in the Lord also be known as being a lazy bones, a slothful sponger of their society? Well, whether or not a Christian could technically do some aspects of of Soji's job or not, the answer of whether someone could be known for being lazy and yet also be known for being in the Lord is, I hope, fairly obvious from the passage uh, that Stephanie just read to us. The answer is no. For those in the Lord Jesus Christ work Indeed, that is the final command of this Second Thessalonians letter in a nutshell. That is the overarching single point of our sermon. Those in the Lord work. Those in the Lord work. Now, for those of you who have not been uh, with us uh, for this short series, perhaps you're visiting this morning, uh, welcome to you. Uh, Let me give you um, a little hand as you get your bearings for a second. For the author here, the, the Apostle Paul A first century man who used to work effectively as a murderer of Christians, but who radically came to trust that the message of Christianity after meeting the resurrected Lord Jesus, the Apostle Paul here is writing his second letter to those Christians who are living in the Greek port city of Thessalonica. Indeed, we note that right at the end of this passage. For if you look at verse 17, you'll see that, that Paul writes this greeting in his own hand. The sign of genuineness in that verse is most likely some kind of signature after a secretary had written it up. And this was very important because as we saw back in chapter 2 and verse 2, some people associated with this church were writing and were pretending to be Paul. And so the Apostle Paul, one who had unique authority, having met the Lord Jesus Christ himself, writes to these fellow Christians. And throughout the letter, he calls these Christians brothers. For wonderfully, he sees them not just as friends, but but as family. But in this last section, Paul uses another term. For in verse 6 and and verse 12 and verse 16, Paul also defines them by their being in the Lord. I don't know if you noticed that. And in doing so, it's, it's almost a return to the start of the letter, where Paul writes to the church of the Thessalonians in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds them that they were in the Lord safe in their union with their saviour, Jesus Christ, hidden in him, safe from God's coming and just wrath. But also, because they were in the Lord, they were also to live with Jesus' Lord. Indeed, as we thought about last week, uh, that their one time saving trust in God's word meant an ongoing submission to God's word. And so getting super practical now, as he closes this letter, Paul unpacks how those in the Lord obey the Lord in relation to work. And as one with authority from Jesus, Paul in essence says, those who listen to the Lord will not be lazy. For you cannot say, I am a citizen in Christ, in his society, in his church, and yet be a slothful sponge off your spiritual siblings for those in the Lord work and that makes sense doesn't it if you think about it because if you're in Jesus that then you will work like Jesus Matt has been teaching to us from from John's gospel 
and been reminding us that Jesus is the vine and that we're the branches. And, and if we do that, then we will produce fruit like Jesus. And Jesus worked. He worked tirelessly as a teacher for three years. He worked tirelessly as a carpenter for three decades. And Jesus worked hard whilst he was on earth, and, and Jesus worked hard to tell people to, to work hard until he returned to earth, as we read earlier. And before all that, Jesus worked by making the earth. Uh, Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created. Indeed, it is because that the Lord is always working that, that Christians understand work to be good. Now, you may have had the most rotten past week at work, and you may feel as though work is some kind of divine curse, but, but in reality, it's a divine gift. Now, now, Christians are not those who are naive to the annoyances and the agonies of work. In fact, Christians have a worldview which explains why the office photocopier always breaks, and why the weeds infest the new plants in the yard, and why childbearing is so incredibly painful, and, and why our colleagues are sometimes just so selfish. We, we, we live in a broken and a sinful world. Our work is marred by rebellion against God as recorded in Genesis chapter 3, but Christians still understand work itself to be good. For the Lord created work before the fall. Work is what the Lord himself did in his creation, and he made his creation to image him by working. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image, uh, accordingly, Genesis 2.15, God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, keep it. So the Lord's people image the Lord in working at the perfect beginning of all history, but also the Lord's people will image the Lord in working at the perfect end of all history. For the Bible promises that those in the Lord at the end of time will not kind of float around lazily on clouds, occasionally lifting a finger to pluck a harp string. We will get the joy of working. Isaiah 65, the Lord says, I will create a new heaven and new earth. And they, that is those in the Lord, will build houses and dwell in them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not toil in vain. And so Christians look forward to God's work made new and then imaging God again by working in a new world that is unspoilt by sin and suffering. Those in the Lord are, are always at work. However, although that's a fairly good kind of basic overview uh, of work across this passage, across the Bible, there are more specifics to Christian work here. For Paul gives the Thessalonians church details about how they were to work and how they were not to work. In fact, Paul even tells this church how they were to deal with those who didn't work. Accordingly, it's a very practical ending to this book. I have eight related subpoints for us. That's right, eight related subpoints because we're working hard this morning. Eight subpoints I want to unpack for the rest of our time. And the first one of these is this. Those in the Lord work, they are busy, not busy bodies. They are busy, not busy bodies. Now, as most commentators point out, that the pinnacle of this passage is found in verses 11 and 12, that the finer details about how to address the idols are, are spoken about at the beginning and the end, and we'll come to those soon. But the real kind of crescendo, the central command, as was common in much ancient writing, is found right in the middle. For verse 11, look down with me. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. 
And so who were the, the, the some among you? Well, presumably it is the people that Paul has been uh, warning about, that the people who were associated with this church who told them that, that Jesus has already come. For it's not too much of a stretch, is it, to imagine how a, a wrong thinking that, that Jesus already returned might have affected whether they, that they turned up early to the Zoom call meeting. And it's seemingly that this false idea that Jesus had returned, had caused many to, to quit their jobs completely. If the heavenly Lord Jesus returned, it's time for you to resign from your earthly job, was their message and application. But for those in the church, for those who listened to the Lord, for those who rightly did not quit their jobs, who rightly knew that, that following Jesus meant hard work, who rightly knew that the, that the timing of Jesus' return was a mystery, what was the result for them? Well, it meant a church not only of decreasing busyness, but also a church of increasing busybodiness. That was the problem. Indeed, verse 11 is, is kind of a play on words in the Greek. For more literally, Paul says, some people are not working for, but working around. Some are busybodying, they're proudly meddling. And so it's a kind of uh, Mrs. Phillips from Pride and Prejudice kind of work kind of popping around, uh, unannounced for the latest gossip from the village, followed by a kind of, oh, would you mind ever so much, dear, if I, if I stayed for tea and sandwiches? They're a picture of the proverb, idle hands are the devil's workshop. But, but in contrast, Paul commands those in the Lord, those listening to the Lord, to be busy, not busy bodies. And if you and I are in the Lord, that is to be true of us too. We don't have to spend all our time absorbed by gossip on our street or at the office or in the church. Sometimes you just don't need to know everything. Sometimes you just need to get on with the task. Yet if we look down at the second key verse and verse 12, that's not the only way we're to work. For second subpoint this morning, those in the Lord work, they work not for praise but to provide. They work not for praise but to provide. Look down with me again at verse 12. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now, now in a church such as ours, I imagine that in one sense that the command to work is not too bruising an application. But the vast majority of us here are, are busy. Nashville is one of the, the fastest growing cities in America. And America is a very, very hard-working nation. You guys work over 400 more hours per year than us comparatively lazy Brits. However, did you notice in Paul's summary command that he was not just concerned about them doing work, but also how they did that work? For those in the Lord Jesus were to work quietly which does not mean turning down the volume on those, on those delightfully enthusiastic but often very loud American voices that the awkward British guy in the office uh, likes to have, that it might be a kind of library-like quiet. But, but rather it means that those in the Lord do not go around loudly making much of themselves. For again, in context, it was probable that these, that these lazy meddlers in the church were doing just that. Most likely it went something like this. Oh, you're still working on the farm, are you, Mary? Are you still building that roof, are you, Tom? Well, I've become a spiritual, super spiritual person myself. 
Jesus is about to arrive. I don't get my hands dirty anymore. Now, now friends, the, the specific boast may, may be different for us, but is it basically a sound in the same key? Indeed, let me ask you, as I asked myself this week, in a world where people define themselves by their jobs, in a world where people plaster their achievements all, all over the walls and all over the internet, what are you really working for? Indeed, what happens when you do a really great job, but nobody hears about it? Do you feel the need to make a lot of noise? What if you get the highest marks in the class, but none of your, 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 your fellow students know? Can you keep quiet about it? But what if you sold your best painting only for no one else to see your masterpiece? What if you got the promotion but your business didn't change uh, your, your, your title on the website. Friends, from the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 to the new skyscrapers of, of Nashville in 2022, humans are very prone, naturally prone, to making our work a siren of self-praise. But those in the Lord are not to do that. For those in the Lord work not loudly, not for people's praise now, but for the Lord's at the end. Indeed, that is why Christians can happily do jobs that the world thinks is totally unpraiseworthy. I love how the German theologian Martin Luther put it. For Luther, despite being a great theologian, well celebrated, never looked to exalt spiritual scholars like himself, even above young mothers of his day. Indeed, at one point, Luther wrote this. You may say... Alas, must I rock the baby, wash its diapers, make its bed, smell its stench, stay up at nights with it, take care of it when it cries, heal its rashes and sores, and on top of that, care for my spouse, provide, labor at my trade, take care of this, take care of that? What then does the Christian faith say to this? It opens its eyes looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the Spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval as with the costliest gold and jewels. Oh, how gladly I will do these things, say those in the Lord, for I am certain that they are pleasing in your sight. Brothers and sisters, if we're, if we're in the Lord, in the Spirit, then refreshingly our, our work is not all about loud approvals. We can work quietly to the Lord. And moreover, the final part of verse 12, we, we work not for praises but, but to provide. For, for that is what the, the earning your living is all about. It is all about providing for ourselves and for other people. Indeed, I really hope and pray that none of you are sitting here and feeling guilty in this sermon because you're not the one who's actually bringing home the paycheck. For in the Bible's economy, our salaries do not define the value of our work. No, the Bible normally defines the value of work by the way in which it provides for other people. And as a result, I hope that all of us know that some of the hardest working people at Edgefield Church are mothers in our church that stay at home. And yet sadly, sometimes when I'm conducting a membership interview, I ask a couple what they do for their vacation, and sometimes the wife will look at me rather sheepishly and say, I'm, I'm afraid I just work at home right now. I'll be going back to work soon, though. Now, my friends, of course, there's Christian freedom in whether a mother works outside the home or not. 
But please do not consider that providing for your family in such a way is not a beautiful vocation. And again, do not define your work by the world's praises, but how you are wonderfully providing for others, the people that the Lord has given you. For Paul did not boast in what he did in Thessalonica or in how much money he earned in tent making, but rather how his part-time job allowed him to provide for others in the church by him not being a burden. So those in the Lord work. They're not, they are busy, they're not busy bodies. They work not for praise, but to provide. And thirdly, they find models to mimic. They find models to mimic. Verse seven, Paul reminds the church of how he commanded them not only to work, but to mimic the self-sacrificial way in which he and Timothy and Silas worked for them. Look at verse seven. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you and did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. One of the things that amused me most uh, in that interview with Soji, the do-nothing guy, was how he said it all started. For, for Soji said it started when he had a role model. I wonder what, who on earth his, his role model was. Perhaps he watched a lot of, kind of Homer Simpson growing up in his youth. But it's striking, isn't it? It's it's striking how when it comes to work, we're we're all kind of wired to to imitate. A while back, uh, Isaac Big shared his testimony uh, right here on on Sunday evening. And one of the things that Isaac said that really shaped his Christian life, perhaps most, was the example of his Christian grandfather who taught him the importance of working sacrificially for his family and for his church. And when I first looked at Isaac's draft testimony that he asked me to look over, I initially thought, well, I wonder if Isaac's grandfather taught him anything else, perhaps about Christology, uh, perhaps about the cross, maybe about Reformed theology. But then I realized that that was to underplay significantly the importance of modeling Jesus' sacrifice in working hard to provide for other Christians. Friends, could it be that that for some of us, we we have this kind of subtle notion whereby we think that we only model the Lord Jesus when we're doing some kind of spiritual work. And so to be a plumber or or a pediatrician, well, that's kind of fine. But if we really want to be in the Lord, then we must think about being a pastor or a preacher. Friends, we all need to find models to mimic. And not only models of, of a right teaching that hopefully saves people, but also a rigorous work that provides for other people too. Friends, who are you imitating at work? Who are you imitating? And parents and and grandparents in particular, how are you modeling to your children and to your grandchildren not only the great importance of being in the Lord, but also modeling a, a night and day working, a working hard to provide for other people in the Lord, just like Isaac's grandfather. And so that is what those in the Lord are to do when it comes to work. Uh, Christians are busy, not busy bodies. Christians work not for praise, but to provide. And Christians find hardworking models, people who are sacrificial to mimic. But what should Christians do if people in their church refuse to work in those ways? 
What if a local church, just like the church in Thessalonica here, is filled with so-called Christians who just kind of sit about, who do not imitate but spend all their days in idleness? What was to happen? Verse 14, if people refuse this letter, if people who claim to be Christians and yet did not listen to Christ, well, Paul is, is strikingly clear, isn't he? That the church is to act in a number of very practical ways, and presumably the, the first thing that was to happen was that the church was to warn them. Point four this morning, if you're keeping count. Uh, those in the Lord work, they warn the work shy. They warn the work shy. Now, now many people in, in the Thessalonian church uh, undoubtedly had good reason not to work. And likewise, in our, in our own church here, there are people who are not working in our church for really good reason. Some of us here are understandably unemployed because we're now too old or, or because we're disabled or because we're doing our very best to find work, but we can't find it right now. And Paul is not, repeat not, talking about warning such people. No, no, those who must be commanded and encouraged to work, verse 12, and those who are not willing to work, verse 11, that the able-bodied busybodies who freeload, verse 8, and those who refuse to obey Jesus, they are the ones to be warned. And this process, if we take the other biblical passages into consideration too, must logically begin with us actually opening our mouths. For when people clearly disobey and cause discord, we, we, we don't sigh but stay silent. We don't slander them to our spouse. We don't go around telling everybody but them. No, no, verse 15, we do not regard them as an enemy, but we warn them as a brother. And who is to do this warning? Which is not to be done in hostility, but is to be done with, with, with all loving kindness of a conversation with a, with a family member. Well, well please note that, that, that Paul is not specifically addressing any group. He doesn't tell the elders. He doesn't tell the deacons. Paul is speaking to every single church member. For when it comes to lovingly warning other people about disobeying the very clear commands of Jesus, every member has a responsibility. That's why our church covenant here at Edgefield it says that if we are members of this church, alongside praying for one another and grieving with one another and rejoicing with one another and encouraging one another, sometimes, quote, in Christian love, exercise affectionate care and watchfulness over each other by encouraging each other to forsake sin. Friends, I hope you know that that part of our church covenant is just as important as other parts of th that we shall do. Going around to someone's house to, to really gently warn about the seriousness of sin can be just as Jesus-honoring as going around to drop off the meal when they've had a baby. And why? Because it is actually, it's actually loving to carefully counsel Christians about sin that, that dishonors Christ and will do dishonor to Christ's name. It was loving for these Christians to tell other Christians in their church family not to be lazy but to work hard. And you know, deep down, we, we, we know that, don't we? Indeed, children here. How many of you have parents uh, who warn you uh, about being lazy? Tell you you have to do your homework 
You have to put your bowls in the dishwasher until you have to pick up all your Lego. Or children, trust me. In their best moments, your mum and dad are not warning you because they're just mad at you. It's actually because they love you. That they love you too much to grow up to be a soji. Growing up thinking that it's okay to do that in a future job. They love you too much to, to, to grow up thinking that your future spouse will just do all the dishes and pick up all the Lego on the floor. Friends, the world tells us today that good parents never admonish and that good friends never advise and that warning people is effectively abuse. But can you see how a gentle, brotherly, not regarding as an enemy, warning is loving? Indeed, can you see how in this particular circumstance, how deeply unloving it would have been if, if nobody in the church said anything at all? As these busybodies just continue to, to go around uh, telling people to, to quit their jobs as they raided Thessalonian fridges and wallets. If everyone decided that, that the, the most loving Jesus-like thing to do was just to kind of keep smiling, keep giving out the sandwiches. Now, now friends, this particular issue here uh, has happily never arisen in our church. Indeed, even with impending recession, I, I can't imagine that it will uh, anytime soon. But what I really want us to grasp from it is, is that warning people who disobeyed Jesus, warning people not as enemies, but as family, is often loving. And that just letting people continue on in disobedience, hoping that someone else just might deal with it, it is not loving at all. Friends, maybe there is someone in our church that you have a really, really good relationship with who really understands you to be a brother and sister who, who might need warning about something. Those in the Lord work. And when Christians refuse to work, they begin by warning the work shy. However, what happens if the work shy don't heed that warning? Well, uh, knowing that the stubbornness of these, and these sluggards in his own situation, uh, Paul unpacks that the next practical step. Uh, those in the Lord work, they don't share with the slothful. They don't share with the slothful. At one point in that interview uh, with the do-nothing guy, the journalist asked, asked Soji what motivates him day in, day out to do nothing. And his answer was really fascinating. For Soji said, not everyone can do something helpful for society. If a society requires you to do something to live, then that's still the law of the jungle. Civilization only exists when useful people can live. Now, I'm pretty sure that, that, that Soji doesn't qualify as useless, but, but I do think that he's onto something. When he talks about... Uh, the, the beautiful civilizations being those that allow that the useless to live. For that's the civilization that we all crave, isn't it? We all deep down want a society that, that, that treats us really well from the time when we're in the womb to the time we're in a care home. We want civilizations that treat us with dignity and value because we are made in God's image and not because we are mere robots to work. And that... That is the civilization of Christ. That, that was one of the key markers, you know, of the early church. For as Paul says in many other places, churches must share with, with those who the world thinks are useless, 
with people in their membership who can't work. In fact, if you read through the, the New Testament, you just see countless examples of this. Church members giving to poorer members and church members supporting widows and orphans and, and churches uh, giving liberally to, to other churches in famine. That the church is that compelling civilization that the sojis of the world long for. And friends, just to let you know, our church does that too. If you are a church member here, you didn't, you didn't know, we have a benevolence fund at our church. And that allows us that the great and wonderful privilege and joy to sometimes come alongside a, a brother or sister who is in need and to be able to provide for them in a season of hardship or unemployment. And that really is a genuine joy. I love those conversations with other people. For, for that is the gospel right there on display. Indeed, if you're a member of the church and you're struggling financially, at present, we don't know about it. Please come and talk to us. We'd love to share with you. And yet, we see here, don't we? The church is not to share with the slothful. Verse 10 is blunt. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. You see, although that the church was to be all about sharing with the sickly and the struggling, they were not to forever share with the slothful. Friends, Jesus tells us to share with the needy, to be merciful, generous, hospitable, but Jesus also says to be wise. And obviously it takes much wisdom and grace and, and honesty. It will depend on a number of things as we think practically. So please, please pray for your elders in that. Uh, particularly Matt Givens as he oversees this in our church, that, that we might be wise and, and, and understand where, where benevolence funds might best be used to serve people and, and model a civilization that brings much glory to Jesus. But finally, what is to happen if a person says that they're, that they, they're, still, they're still in the Lord, but they still will not listen to Jesus even when the church stops supporting their sin? In Thessalonica, what was to happen if these slothful people just, just keep coming around for sandwiches and slander and a, and a slice of false teaching? Well, if you look at verse 6 and verse 14, you will see that finally the church must keep away from and have nothing to do with such people. Point six, those in the Lord work, they withdraw from those who walk in sin. They withdraw from those who walk in sin. Which meant what for them and for us? Well, first of all, can you, can you please note that, that Paul didn't say withdraw from those who sin because every Christian sins. Now, now Christians are, are hopefully conforming more and more to the likeness of the Lord Jesus as they listen carefully to his word. But if we were to withdraw from, from all those who sin, then, then we'd all live on an island, wouldn't we? There'd be no gathering of Edgefield Church. We'd all be hiding from one another. No, Edgefield church members are all sinners. Friends, I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. Because to qualify for membership of this church, you actually have to put your hand up and say, I am a wretched sinner. I really need help. I need Christ. Christians sin. But Christians do not walk in sin. Do you see that adverbial phrase in, in, in verse 6? You, you see these people... Well, we're not people who honestly just kind of reflected on their efforts and, and concluded, yeah, I have been listening to the podcast at work. I, I, I probably shouldn't do that. They weren't those who said, yeah, I could do more around the house. I, 
I'm, I'm genuinely sorry. No, no, verse 6, they, they walked in idleness. That they walked contrary to God's word, told to them again and again. There was a defiant unrepentance about their sloth, and they did not care what God's word said about this. They, they said, I, I am walking this path of apathy, and I don't care who gets in my way or what this does to the reputation of the Lord. And in those situations, according to Paul here, and according to the Lord Jesus in Matthew 18, in those situations, finally, when a Christian has lovingly warned, as kind as they can, like a brother, and has carefully pointed people to the Bible, then in those situations, look at verse 14. There has to be some form of taking note and then having nothing to do with. For as Jesus himself says, at Matthew 18, if the unrepentant one refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be considered not part of the Lord's people. Which does not mean that, that, that we are surly towards them, and it does not mean that we shun them, and it certainly does not mean that we stop them coming to church. We want them to come to church. We want to hear the gospel and to repent. We want them to, to come back to the Lord and his word. We long for that. We pray for that. But it does mean that the, kind of the, the relationship changes somehow. And perhaps it means that we can no longer say with confidence that they're in the Lord from what we can see. Perhaps they have to be removed from church membership. But, but again, this is something that is done with great patience this again is something which takes great care because we're all sinners. We all struggle to obey the Lord at times. Uh, this process, sometimes called church discipline, it is done with mercy and much time and many tears, but done in love so that hopefully people might wake up. Sometimes we're called to withdraw from those who walk in sin. And yet alongside that, uh, verse 13.7 those in the Lord are also to keep being kind. Keep being kind. I mean, just imagine with me, just, just for a minute, just imagine with me how you'd feel as a, as a relatively poor Christian living in first century Thessalonica and persecuted by your, your, your non-Christian neighbors as we read in chapter one and someone from your church who had quit their job and, and boasted that they did this for super spiritual reasons just kept coming around every single mealtime. Picture the scene. You just finished making the pie and you call the kids in from the yard and, and there they are. They're at the dining room table again. Thanks for having me around again. Been reading lots of theological books this afternoon. No time for me to slave away in the kitchen. Well, I imagine you'd feel a little bit discouraged. In fact, I imagine that, 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 that the enduring nature of this if, this, if this constantly happened again and again and again, it would make you fairly bitter towards the church, wouldn't it? And no doubt similarly, that there were, there were church members in, in first century Thessalonica who were pretty much done with being kind. And friends, sadly, that's what often happens in church, where, where someone is lazy, where someone is a constant burden on other people, when someone keeps going around and, and slandering other people, when, when, when someone keeps walking in sin. Finally, that the one who has been kind snaps, or, or maybe they just go into hiding. Well, they understandably, they say to themselves, I, I think I'm done with this now. 
These so-called people in the Lord have just let me down too often. My own family is now being exploited. I'll keep reading my Bible and I'll keep praying, but I'm not serving anymore. And yet the pastoral Paul, who perhaps sees that on the horizon, says, verse 13, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. You may have to finally withdraw from them. They may sadly be removed from membership, but until then, don't give up on being amazingly kind to those people who don't deserve it. Because that's ministry. It's like being like Christ. And perhaps someone here just needs to hear verse 13 this morning and to go away and meditate upon that. Perhaps someone just needs to be reminded. The Lord sees. The Lord sees your Christ-like weariness with the people who don't deserve your, your benevolence. And he smiles at all your steadfastness and calls you to keep on being kind. And very finally, with this we shall close. What is the motivation for such kindness? Indeed, what is the motivation for all the work that we've looked at this morning? A desire to be busy, not to be a busybody. A desire not for, not for praise, but to provide for other people. A, a, a desire to, to look for, for models, to mimic. A desire to, to warn people, even to withdraw. And a desire to keep on being kind. Well, such Christ-like work will only occur if we are given God's grace. Final point, last two minutes, and I've gone a touch long. Those in the Lord work because they have been given his grace. Because they have been given his grace. Paul closes his letter in verses 16 and 18 by reminding them again that they're in the Lord. The Lord be with you, verse 16. Our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, verse 18. And so what does that, that being in the Lord bring? Well, being in the Lord causes us to work like the Lord Jesus as you produce that, that fruit of, of being in Christ. But, but also being in the Lord, being united to Jesus means that his peace and his grace will flow into us as we do that work. Verse 16, may the Lord of peace give you peace. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. May he gracious. Paul is saying that all this work can occur if we meditate upon the fact that we have been given grace in the Lord. Friends, Christian work is is working in a different way to to how the world works. For for Christians do not work for themselves, they they work for others. But but also Christians do not only work, sorry, do not work for, for others in order to get God's grace. Christianity, in a sense, is not a religion. Christians do not work to merit a relationship with God. Christians know that only Jesus worked like that. Christians do not earn enough to pay for God's grace. Christians know that only Jesus' blood can do that. But having turned from, from, from walking in sin and having turned to follow the Lord Jesus and so having been given God's grace, those in the Lord understand that they owe everything to him. Indeed, they understand that it is God's grace given that is the fuel, the fuel for every good endeavor. And so as we go out into this next week of work, we're going to close 
by reminding one another of that, of that grace of the Lord that wonderfully we have in him. But before we sing, let's pray together. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you and praise you so much that your word is so practical, so true to life, so real. Father, we thank you for such concrete and clear examples of, of how to live together as a church in a broken world. And so, Father, we ask and pray that we would work by your grace to do such things. Father, we pray that we would not be lazy, that we would not be a burden to other brothers and sisters. And so we pray that we would work for others, that we would work so that we can be generous to those here in our church family. And so, Father, uh, we, we pray that in all these ways that we would continue to be kind, that we would not grow weary of doing good, but that we would be moved to work by the grace that you have shown us in the Lord. For your glory we pray. Amen.